0: Philippians chapter 1. We're almost done with this chapter. No, we're not. Never mind. I don't know what I was thinking. We're about halfway done with this chapter. Philippians 1. I'll be reading verses 15 through 18. Let us pray. Our God, we do come before you again. We ask that you would help us to understand the proclamation of Christ and to rejoice in that proclamation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Hear now the word of God. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you want to keep up a conversation, you just have to ask one word. Why? It's a beautiful word, isn't it? It opens up to a world of possibilities. Why? Daddy, why did the pitcher throw the ball outside the plate four times in a row? What a wonderful opportunity, Dad, to teach your kids about pitching strategy. Of course, it can be exasperating when the question why assaults your ears over and over and over again. Parents, sometimes this can resonate with us, yes? You might have been asked the question why ten times just today by one of your children. It's a great word when we want to arrive at someone's motives for doing something. We might be sad and we say, well, why did you say that to me? Were you angry? Were you trying to hurt me? Why'd you say it? We might be confused and say, I wonder why he left. It just doesn't make any sense to me why he's not here. We might be happy and say, what is this? You got me two dozen red roses? Valentine's Day is over. Why'd you do that? Are these just cuz flowers? Did you do something bad? Is there an ulterior motive behind this gift? Asking why can be very helpful when we do not know the motives and, very important, we don't want to assume the motives, but instead we want to probe deeper into a person's words or actions. Motives are significant considerations. They often reveal what is deep in the heart. It's an important question to ask, but... In some cases, it's not the all-important question to ask. And what Paul is telling us here this morning is that when the gospel is being truly proclaimed, motives play second fiddle to the joyful playing of gospel music in the ears of its listeners. And so the point this morning is, whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, his people rejoice. Whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, his people rejoice. So, Motus, what are they? Remember the context of Paul's writing these words. He has been a bold witness to the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he and God has advanced the gospel even to the imperial guard. And this gospel witness has emboldened many likewise to share the gospel. Many people throughout the Roman Empire have begun speaking well of Jesus. They reason if imprisoned imprisoned Paul can testify to Christ, well, surely those who are not bound, who are not literally in chains, can be bold, fearless witnesses to the deity, to the humanity of Christ. But not everyone has the same motives for boldly proclaiming Christ. And before we look at these different motives, we do well to think about motives in general. Again, motives are those matters of the heart that compel us to do what we do. We do well then to ask ourselves these basic questions when considering our own actions. And, beloved, we ought to consider our own actions. Not just that we did something, that we said something, but why we did, why we said. So we ask very basically, what motivates me? What motivated me to do that? What motivated me to say that thing to her? we ask, why, why do I do what I do? Or why did I do what I did? Why did I say what I said to him? Or we can fill in the blank. If I don't get X, whatever that is, then I will not be truly happy. I will be miserable. Fill in the blank, whatever that is. Many motives are on the table for the choosing. Pleasure, power, love, intimacy, comfort. Other motives include control, freedom, peace, happiness, significance or reputation, respect, success. We could be motivated by any number of of those. A student who never seems to be available for that group project, you know who that is. Maybe it's you. What is he motivated by? Perhaps comfort. The wife who is embarrassed that someone saw her messy house might be motivated by reputation, might be seeking reputation. The husband whose children cower before him and whose wife always walks on eggshells around him might be seeking power or control. Of course, people are complex and sometimes multiple motives compete, they're at play with one another. But underlying motives is a simple statement, I want whatever it is. I did the thing, I said that thing because I wanted, and then whatever it is, power, influence, control, happiness, peace, freedom. The basic motive that should govern everyone's heart, and we already covered it this morning, is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. That is our fundamental motive for all that we do, at least it ought to be. And so, just the first application point here is that the wise consider not only what they do, but why they do. Motives matter. Motives matter because hearts matter, because people are not mere acts. They're not mere behaviors. God's not Pavlov, and and we're not dogs, God cares not only what we do, but why we do. So return to the example that I gave in the introduction about the husband giving his wife two dozen red roses. Wives, does it matter why your husbands give you so many beautiful roses? Now, we're just going to, the premise is he has given you beautiful red roses. If he hasn't, well, that's something else. But we're just going to assume that he does with some regularity. Does it matter why your husbands give you so many beautiful roses? Or do you care only about the gift of roses? You're just all about flowers. You gotta have them. It doesn't matter who they're coming from or why they're being given to you. You just gotta have flowers. Surely not. You you do care, don't you, why you get those beautiful flowers. Would you be satisfied with your husbands if they said they got you flowers because, well, it's what American society expects of couples in mid-February and here we are in mid February, so out of duty to my American society, you get flowers. Would that suffice? What if your husband said, Well, I got you these flowers because I just spent $3,000 converting our shed into a cigar lounge, even though we didn't have the money to make you a little less mad at me? Not a real example. Just... <laughs> or what if you were allergic to flowers? And he told you he got them for you, either because, well, he forgot that you were allergic, so he's being insensitive to your allergic condition, or even worse, he wanted you to be miserable. He was mad at you. So here, have some flowers and sneeze all day. Does that matter to you? Of course it matters. All those reasons would not warm the cockles of your heart. You wouldn't say, oh, honey, I just see how much you love me. Of course, the truth remains, the flowers are there, they're beautiful, they smell great, they look very pretty. But something's lacking, the motive of the gift-giving. Brothers and sisters, dear saints and Lord, our Father in heaven cares about what we do and why we do it. And so we must ask ourselves all the time, are we moved to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever with our day, with whatever we are saying, with whatever we are thinking of doing, with our action, with this relationship? That is the fundamental motive, it's a fundamental question to ask. Why do we do what we do? This is important because we're about to consider ungodly motives. These motives Paul does not endorse. He is not approving of. He is not promoting for us to have. Look with me at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And so some people are preaching the gospel out of their own selfish ambition. They are preaching the gospel for themselves. Some are preaching from envy. Two or three weeks ago in our ABF lesson, we considered that love does not envy. This is giving someone the evil eye out of jealousy. This word is used in Mark 15, verse 10. Out of envy, the chief priests delivered up Jesus. They viewed him as a thunder thief, stealing their thunder, ruining their system. And he had to go. Because they were envious of the man. They were envious of his authority with which he spoke. Of the power with which he performs so many miracles? Of his teaching? Of who he really is? 1 Peter 2.1 says that we are told to put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy. Envy bad. Put it away. Titus 3.3 says we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. And one of those is envy. That was our life. We were envious. Remember King Saul's envy of the up-and-coming King David from the phrase, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul was not rejoicing with David's victories. He was envious of David's victories. One man says, envy sharpens its teeth every night. It's a good picture of what envy is about. And some people are preaching the gospel out of envy. Others preach, he says, from rivalry or strife. This is that contentious spirit that cannot get enough quarrels. Has to have the drama. And I have found, ironically, that those people who say, I don't like drama, are actually the most dramatic. You don't like drama, but your actions certainly seem to lead you to like drama, you like the fights got to have the attention. But Paul in Titus three nine says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, that's the word, rivalries. Avoid those things. So here's a heart full of discord in itself which spills into relationships. This is not the kind of healthy competition that we look for in worthy pursuits. This is not the kind of iron sharpening iron situation that we need. This isn't Okay, we have an evangelism team, and we're going on a university campus, and let's just see how many people we can talk to. I bet I can talk to more people than you can talk to. Well, no, I don't think so. That's a healthy competition. I want to share the gospel with as many people as I can. That's good. But that's not what's going on here. It's out of that envy, out of strife, contention. I don't like that he's sharing the gospel to all those people. I'm going to beat him he's going to get the glory because he's going to have the reputation for saving all those souls and me just maybe one soul of course we don't save any souls both of these words envy and rivalry, are two of the evident works of the flesh that paul speaks against in galatians five twenty. so some are preaching the gospel from envy and from rivalry others are preaching it out of insincerity or not purely. These men have impure, defiled, and unclean motives. By contrast, Paul is going to, his goal is to present the Corinthians, for instance, as pure virgin of Christ. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, Do not take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. That's the word here. First John three, three, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. And back to our letter in Philippians chapter four, verse eight, the Philippians are urged to focus on whatever is pure, not on what is impure, unclean. And by the gift of insight, Paul has peered into the hearts of these men and says, These hearts are unclean, they are defiled hearts, they are impure hearts. And this is seen very clearly in their actions. Their actions, which Paul says, are aimed at his affliction. In verse 17, it says, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They are planning to cause me pain, even while I'm in prison. They're preaching the gospel to afflict me. There's some tentativeness to their thinking here. They're they're unsure of Paul. They're, They're not sure if their superficial association with Paul will exalt them, and by doing so, rub the chains deeper into Paul's flesh. But they're hoping it will, and they're praying it will. Now, this word selfish ambition really summarizes the heart of these preachers. That's why they do what they do. It's out of selfish ambition. This is that summary term for everything else that we just looked at. Envy, robbery, insincerely, not purely, aimed at affliction. Paul uses this word elsewhere in Romans 2.8. He says, some are self-seeking, not obeying the truth. They really don't care about the truth. They care about themselves. They're seeking themselves. They're going on a distant land to go find themselves because they are what matter to themselves. In Philippians 2: three he uses this word: "Do nothing from selfish ambition." So remember when we get to Philippians two, that there's a, a, a contrast here between what some preachers of the gospel are doing and what the Philippians are called to do is nothing from selfish ambition, which means to do everything from exalting Christ. Do nothing out of your own well, insisting on your own way, as we learned about this morning in ABF. They are in it for themselves. Just consider two illustrations, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Do you remember Balaam? He prophesied truly, but he didn't do so with pure motives. He prophesied truly, but with impure, unclean, defiled heart. Balak had twisted his arm, so he eventually spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what he said, if you're going to call me to be your prophet, I know you want me to curse Israel. I'm only going to say what God has told me to say. Deal? He says, yeah, deal. And so he prophesies, truly. But his motives were impure. New Testament Revelation speaks about Balaam's heart and says that we are supposed to avoid the way of Balaam, which is the way of gain, which is the way of greed. And we saw that with Greedy Gehazi in 2 Kings 5 taking advantage of a miracle for his own sake. Naaman is cleansed. Naaman is blessed. Elisha says, don't you give me anything, Naaman. This is a gift from God. Don't you think that you, that you can earn God's grace? And then Gehazi said, oh, my, my master, just new situation unfolded. We've got to help people, and they need some clothes. They need some money. And Naaman is all too willing to give because he's generous. He's been saved. And so Gehazi takes advantage of Naaman because he's motivated by greed. We have to avoid that way of Balaam. Or remember in the New Testament, those miracle workers in Jesus' day in Matthew 7, verse 22, these people on the last day will recount their mighty acts. They prophesied in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They did mighty works in the name of Jesus. Surely, they're awesome. Didn't we do these things to you, for you, God? But They who cast out demons actually end up being cast out by the very name that they have invoked, the name of Jesus. And why? Because the miracles were bad? Because the exorcisms were somehow wrong? No. Because their motives were all wrong. They were, as Jesus calls them, workers of lawlessness. They didn't care about Christ. They cared about themselves. And Christ was the way, the truth, the life for themselves. Not to the Father, but back to them. Christ was the way to promote themselves. Christ was abused by these people for their own self glory. That's blasphemous. It's damnable. It's an abomination to to treat Christ that way, to highly prize Christ before all, but secretly for yourself. Do you see how all, all these motives are just ironic? They contradict the heart of the gospel. They're all about what they can get for themselves, exalting themselves, gaining for themselves. Ironically, they preach the gospel, but they deny its core, that of the self-giving of Christ, who didn't insist on his own way, but who insisted on the way of the Father. He came to give. Over and over again, read the Gospel of John. My will is to do the will of my Father. I came to give for you. And some are saying, yeah, he did that. But secretly, they're trying to get it for themselves. They're using the ministry of the Word for the exaltation of self. I mean, there are many people who enter the ministry because, well, they are gifted speakers. They like to be in positions of power. They like to stand in front of crowds and speak and and let people hear how eloquent they are. Or because they want to receive gifts and, and monies from the sheep. They're fleecing the flock, they have wrong motives. Paul Paul does not in any way countenance these motives. He never says, these are, these are godly motives. They're impure. Some preach from envy, from rivalry, from insincerity, aimed at affliction, from selfish ambition. But others, Paul's encouraged, knows that they preach out of love, out of goodwill. The right motive for proclaiming Christ is love. Love all around. Love for Paul. These men, these other men, they loved Paul. They associated with Paul. They showed this love for him by boldly proclaiming Christ, the one for whom Paul was in chains. And they would be in prison right there with him if that's what it came down to. They also loved the gospel. More than their love for Paul is, of course, their love for the gospel. The good news of Jesus is the music of salvation to their once deaf ears. It is the gospel music that they now sound forth from their trumpeting mouths. But they also love God. Joined to their love for the gospel is their love for God. Because after all, God is the gospel. God is the good news. He is the good news of salvation. It is from God that flow grace and peace into their hearts and into our hearts. So others are preaching from love. They're also preaching from goodwill toward men. God's grace of love moved these men to will good for others. It was their solidarity with Paul that moved them to proclaim Christ. They said, yes, he's not going to be a lone preacher. We will join with him, link arms, proclaim Christ with Paul. And it was their love for their fellow man that moved them to proclaim Christ. They knew that there was salvation in one person alone, Jesus Christ. And they were happy to proclaim Christ. Because they knew that that was true good for those who haven't yet believed. Because of John 3.16, these men boldly proclaim Christ and seek the good of another. And here, they imitate the Father in heaven, who in sending the Son proclaimed Christ peace and goodwill among men. And so, why do you... Proclaim Christ. Of course, this assumes that you actually do proclaim Christ. By this, I don't mean that you have to be on the street corner holding up a sign or preaching. That's not what we're talking about here. But sharing Christ, speaking well of Jesus and what He has done for sinners. Why do you do that i'm assuming you do of course we not not one of us ever does it as well as we would like and to as many people as we would like but we do speak of christ which is commendable but fundamentally the question is why why do you speak of jesus why do you tell your what why do you tell your kids about christ Why do you tell your husband, your wife, about Christ? Why do you tell your friend about Christ? Why do you tell one another about what Christ has done for them? Why? Do you do so out of selfish ambition? Secretly trying to gain for yourself? Do you do so out of love? Consider some of the gospel implications. Why do you, wife, tell your husband about the gospel implications of his behavior? Do you do so to hit him over the head with the gospel? or because God in Christ has had compassion on you? Don't wield the gospel as if it were law. Why do you, husband, remind your wife of the church's duty to submit? Do you do that to clothe your domineering ways in the garment of the gospel? Or to wash her with the water of the word? Why do you, dear saint, share your testimony with anyone? Now, testimonies are not the gospel. You know this. They are the effect of the power of the gospel. They are your own personal recountings of how God has transformed, saved your life, although they are not the gospel. The power of the gospel doesn't depend on your own testimony, and yet God has graciously transformed our lives and has saved us in different ways, as to say, different stories through the way Jesus Christ Why then do you share your testimony? Is it to humble brag? Is it to show that you really weren't all that bad? You just needed a little bit of tweaking? Or do you, in no uncertain terms, tell how great a wretch you were that you might show how great a Savior Christ is? That is, Christ is so powerful, he is so gracious that he saved even you. Yes, even you. Now, what do we do then about those who have bigger platforms, those we might call celebrity preachers? Do we view mighty witnesses of Christ as models and teachers or as reason for jealousy? Maybe just consider the church. And here we have a smaller church in comparison to other churches in our own presbytery. Are we envious of, say, Christ's covenant with its hundreds of members? Am I envious of Kevin D. Young? He has such a huge platform to speak to so many people, so many many talks, so many conferences. Ministers need to ask themselves, do we view these people as the reason for jealousy? Or are these opportunities to rejoice Praise God that 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 man has that many people to preach the gospel to. David Strain says, There is something particularly ugly about what is designed by God to be a means of grace as a means to bring others down and to promote ourselves. The means of grace are for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. Our own church this is many years ago. This was before Pastor Owen's time, a long time ago. Our own church had an officer candidate who gave thousands of dollars for a building fund. At the same time, coincidentally, he uh, he was, candidating to be an elder. It just so happened that the session, upon examination, said, "Brother, we don't think that you are qualified to be an elder." We don't want to put you before the congregation to be elected as an elder. And this really infuriated him. I'm told he slammed the Bible on the table and ran off and then demanded that the money he gave be returned to him. And one of our elders had to write that check. These things have happened. And it's clear, obviously, that that person wasn't the right fit for a session. But that's certainly not unique. Why do people want to become officers? Why do they want to become an elder or a deacon? Why do they want to become a chair of a committee? Why do we do what we do? Is it to get our name out there? Or is it to get Christ's name out there? And can we see then why Paul prayed for love and wisdom and for more and more of it? for the Philippians, for us. Beloved, let us put aside everything about us and exalt everything about Christ. In other words, let us make the main thing the main thing. Verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What then? If motives matter, but are not all important... And if some are preaching from envy, rivalry, with insincerity, with intentions to hurt, with motives of selfish ambition, what then? Paul says, I refuse to view these guys as a threat, even though they so obviously view me as one. What then? Focus on the main thing. What's the main thing? It is that Christ is being preached. It's that Christ is being proclaimed, not that Paul is being preached. Not that Apollos is being preached, not that Peter is being proclaimed, but that Christ is being proclaimed. And it's not that a distorted Christ is being preached, but that the true Christ from distorted motives. You know that if a, if a false Christ were being preached, Paul would be all on that, like white on rice, as, as we say. As he says to the Galatians, if anyone brings to you, if everyone preaches to you a different Christ, different gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. That's not what we have here in the Philippian church. Is that Christ is truly being proclaimed from distorted motives, from unclean motives. Go back to Balaam. Israel was not cursed, but blessed. Then who was cursed? It was Balaam. Balaam, the one who was sent by God, to bless Israel, ends up being cursed. But Israel was truly blessed. Or go back to those miracle workers in Jesus' day. Real people had real demons cast out of them. Praise be to God. Mighty works really were being performed. Praise be to God. Jesus is powerful enough to have people with false motives prophesy truly in his name. We hear by this in John's Gospel. The high priest Caiaphas prophesied truly, but out of expedience, that it would be better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He wasn't exalting the exclusivity of Christ. He thought it would just be better if Jesus died and stopped a rebellion. Jesus' hands are pure enough to work miracles through unclean hands. And so, beloved, it isn't about us. It isn't about our ministries. It isn't about our programs, our studies, our women events, our ABF lessons, our sermon series, our men's Bible study, our anything. It isn't about us. All those things are wonderful. And I encourage you to attend all of those. And by the way, side note, if you're a woman and you weren't at the Women's Bible Study on Thursday... That library was packed, and it looked like a really nice time. Fellowship with one another, studying the Word of God together. If you have the time, be there. But it isn't about them. We're not the main thing. All of these are for the proclamation of Christ crucified and for the demonstration of true love and goodwill toward one another in union with Christ. And so, beloved saints, in this perf- imperfect world, we can rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. And why can we rejoice? It's because, even contrary to their own intentions or motives, and contrary to our own complex and mixed motives, God is still glorifying his Son through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Now, when John Calvin was kicked out of Geneva, along with, with, along with other faithful ministers, New men had to fill the pulpit vacancies that these reformers were forced to leave. And some of Calvin's friends thought that these replacements were wicked and unworthy men. And so this was a perfect opportunity for Calvin to jump on the bitterness bandwagon. Say, yeah, those guys are nasty narrative wells. We want to avoid them like the plague. In fact, here's a plan for you to get them out of power. What does he do? He says, I do not care by whom it is that the work of the Lord is carried forward, provided that it is well done. What's he saying? I don't have to be the one in Geneva. Yeah, I'm in Strasbourg, and it's actually pretty nice over here right now, a lot better than Geneva. But I don't have to be the one. It's not about Paul. It's not about Calvin. It's not about Ken Godwin. It's not about Ben Heyman. It's not about Michael Mock. It's not about any of us. It's about Christ. And if Christ is truly proclaimed, in that I rejoice. The ministry, the proclamation of Christ is never about us. God humbles us with needed correction. This gospel song isn't about you. It's about Jesus. The gospel, the proclamation of Christ is for us, praise be to God, it is for us, but it is not about us. The gospel goes forth from us, but it is not about us, and thank God for that. Let's pray. Our glorious, gracious God, you who are the good news to our hearts, we thank you so very much for the good news of Jesus Christ for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of Jesus, for the salvation that we have in Christ. And we do pray that we would proclaim Christ and do so with pure motives, and that we will also rejoice that even people whose hearts we do not know preach Christ from impure motives, we can still rejoice because Christ is preached. And that is all that matters. Because ultimately, Lord, he alone is who matters. And we thank you, Lord, for him. It is in his name we pray. Amen.